Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and it is my honor to be joined today by Aaron Howell, VP of Business and Finance and CFO at Averett University. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, thank you. Good morning. So this season of CBO Speaks gets us right to the meat of the matter and goes right to the good stuff. So I'm going to ask you, Aaron, to start off by telling us what issue you think will most impact the way colleges and universities conduct business in the next 10 years? I know it's kind of a, you know, an easy question for you, but give us your thoughts. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I guess to start off with, it, it, it would probably be very difficult for anybody in this field to boil uh, our industry and the future of our industry into an issue said in the singular. So I'm going to answer it kind of in the plural. I think that there are a number of key issues that we're all going to struggle with, whether you're a, a large public or a small private. Uh, I think that we all know what the demographics look like for the coming um, six to 10 years where we've got uh, overall kind of a shrinking population of students that are looking to go to college. Um, and because of that, it's going to create uh, different levels of competition than we've really been experiencing in the past 20 years, at least. Um, and and that competition does interesting things. You know, you have public schools that, uh, depending upon where you are in, uh, in the U.S., have the ability to just kind of take as many as they want. Uh, and I, I know that we experienced that in Virginia when our public schools uh, are increasing their enrollment and really what it does, especially for uh, those of us who are drawing a significant part of our enrollment from the local areas, it just shrinks the overall pie. And the number of people who are trying to eat that pie uh, isn't shrinking significantly. Of course, we do hear the tragic stories of uh, universities who are forced to, to shutter, but uh, for the most part, the people who are still hungry for that pie or the institutions anyway um, are still out there. And so there's just more, more competition and it makes it, it, you know, that much more difficult and forces us to be that much more creative and agile. Uh, I think that the, uh, one of the things that a lot of schools and, and what I read from my peers, most of us seem to be um, dealing with are mental health issues and the um, increasing number of those that we see. Uh, I know when I speak with my dean of students, um, we we talk about stories of of students that are really needing uh, health in that or help in that area, and it's it's things that are difficult for uh, for universities. I think sometimes to deal with, especially if it becomes a significant resource issue, whether it's getting uh, mental health professionals available to to help the students, or if it's uh, revising your processes and your policies to allow for things like, uh, you know, therapy pets or emotional support animals. 
so all those types of things, I think, continue to impact us. Um, and then lastly, I guess I'd probably mention the, uh, the impact of online. Uh, I think that, that that area or that sector of our industry is um, going to continue to transform and impact us. And as we look to be responsive to our customers' needs, I think that you're going to see a blurring of the lines between a traditional student and a non-traditional or online student, at least that's the way we're looking at it. I think that we're going to see more and more students who come to college for the uh, experience of, uh, you know, campus life and developing relationships, but uh, more of them are not going to want to sit in a classroom and they'll be more than happy to sit on their, uh, their bed and their, in their residence hall room and, and log on to a class and take it that way. So uh, I think that that, you know, we've got to be thinking about that and how it's going to affect how we offer and what we offer uh, and how we're responsive to those uh, desires on the part of our customers. So just a few things to be thinking about moving forward. <laughs> a <couple> things in <laughs> the future. And that was just a small slice, I'm sure. How do you think that current CBOs can best prepare or develop the next generation of higher education leadership? And especially when you consider the growing desire to continue to diversify the field? I think that that's an interesting question. And, and as, as I look at it, I think that it's a, uh, a situation where you really have to start at the beginning, because I think that it really starts with how you're recruiting diversity to your organization, because if you don't recruit it to your organization, you can't grow effectively uh, diversity in, in any field that you're talking about. If you don't initially bring them in, then you can't grow them. Um, and many of us have put a lot of time and effort and resources and intention around those recruiting activities. Uh, you know, and I think it's beyond where you can just put out, you know, an advertisement for a position and expect to get good diversity. You've got to be really intentional about it, you know, and I think there has to be a lot of intention as well around engagement because I've seen many failures where perhaps an organization is effective in recruiting uh, some diversity, but then for whatever reason, that individual uh, may not stay because the institution doesn't have the engagement resources developed to make uh, make all of our people feel fully valued and creating support structures for them. So I, I think that that's very important as well as making sure that you create engagement, not just the recruiting of diversity. When you're talking about growing your overall bench, I think a big part of it is creating out-of-the-box or providing out-of-the-box opportunities for people and seeing who really gravitate to those who, you know, you'll have certain people in your organization who are fearful of those and they just want to do their job eight to five and go home. And then you'll see other people who really are um, encouraged and aggressive and, and saying, hey, I want that next opportunity because those are the people that you invest in and you can really grow. Not to say that there's not value in the people who are just doing their eight to five job because we all need those as well. But when you're trying to figure out where you're going to put the resources and the growing people, then you can see who's responsive to those types of uh, opportunities as they come up. Excellent. And I love your emphasis on retaining diverse talent. I think that's something that I don't hear very often. Lots of people are talking about how to attract diverse applicants, um, but I think you have a really salient point in thinking about engaging them once 
once you have them. So I love that. I think that that's, I, I try to be a good listener and I, I can't uh, take ownership of that, but I can say I have an idea very <laughs> effective. Right. Is, uh, you know, I've had people that I respect in the diversity arena um, talk to me about those issues in the mm-hmm. past and, mm-hmm. and they make a lot of sense to me. So I want to make sure that we're we're sharing that with others. I would love if you would talk now, not only just to our listeners who are already CBOs, but maybe listeners who are considering a CBO role as a next career move, what would you say are the top three skills or attributes to be most critical for CBOs in today's higher ed, higher ed landscape, and especially looking forward to some of the issues that you've already outlined for us? I think that that's interesting. And I, I thought a lot about that in preparation. And I know one of the things that really struck me fairly quickly um, when I stepped into this role uh, was the importance of being able to prioritize because as we talk about, you know, uh, what, what what I was mentioning before about the future of our industry and how uh, there's more competition, there's uh, less resources to go around, there are in any, probably in any position in any of our organizations, really more work than there are the people to do it. And so you really have to be able to prioritize. And in in the CBO role, you have to be able to combine that prioritization with really critical and overarching thinking, strategic thinking to say, okay, well, of all these things that are on my plate, what are the things that I really got to dedicate resources and time and effort to today? Because I know that that is planting the seed that we want to grow uh, for our institution in the future. You know, obviously we've got to get the compliance activities done. We've got to, you know, get the budgets out. We've got to do all those types of things, but you've really also got to be able to identify what are those things that are going to be most impactful in the future success of your institution as a whole. And so it's a combination of both of those things, the strategic critical thinking and, and being able to then prioritize on a daily basis. I mean, you know, we, and, you know, I won't say that higher education is really any different than a lot of organizations now in any field, but um, there's just tons of things that come at us all the time. And whatever your plan is for the day, when you, you know, walk into the <laughs> office at 745 is surely going to change by the time it's 815 uh, because the president calls or, you know, this meeting or that meeting. So uh, those are very important. I also think uh, one of the things that really can't be overlooked is uh, relationship management. Now, we don't, you know, have the luxury of, of thinking exactly like and, and working with people who are exactly like us every day. And so surely you're going to have situations where you're being irritated by somebody or there's somebody you really just don't enjoy, you know, being in meetings or conversations or projects with. But um, you, if you're going to be effective in this role, you have to be able to um, to really work professional, effective working relationships. Uh, I've got I've had a number of people I can look back on my career and say, yeah, I really didn't enjoy working with that person. But I can also say that a big part of my success in um, getting to where I I am today is my ability to manage good working relationships with people, regardless of whether or not I agree with everything they say or do. Uh, it's just very important that you don't, uh, you know, hotheads tend to not, you know, tend to flame out a little bit and people who are too passive don't, uh, uh, don't get things done. And so you got to be able to manage that balance. And, uh, again, a big part of that, I think is, is working with a lot of, 
um, different types of people and being able to get along with everybody. Do you have any stories, Aaron, that stand out when you think about maybe how you develop some of those skills over the course of your career so far? Your prioritization and your critical thinking, uh, a lot of times that starts early in your career. And so I can think of times when um, at any given moment, I may feel like I've got a ton of stuff on my plate and I don't know how it's going to get done. And <laughs> I, I can think about how you take a step back or you sit back and you just think about, stop and think about things. And doing that effectively, probably over a number of years, you get better and better at it, kind of like public speaking and, and, and things like that. Uh, so I don't know if I could point to a specific story on that one. I, I can think of a couple of different stories with relationship management where um, where I was effective and that people noticed. In fact, one of my earliest career or earliest career stories uh, right out of college, I was working in procurement at a uh, federal facility in eastern Washington, and um, I was tasked with uh, working with a uh, uh, a researcher who was known to be very difficult and they said, good luck. And so, um, I made it a point to, um, to go visit right off the bat. Um, in fact, I remember her name, Judith Manberger and, uh, to go visit her in her lab, understand what her needs were, uh, begin working with her on things and then identifying the fact that she felt fine if she was in, you know, got some sort of message daily, even if it was, Hey, this is still happening next week. Just wanted to, you know, confirm that with you, whatever. But it was it was over communicating with her that made for an effective working relationship. Um, I can also think about particular times when, you know, less communication with these people, unless something's critical is happening that you need my help on, you know, stay out of my space. Mm-hmm. And being able to be able to shift your approach back and forth between those different people. And so, you know, I was successful with Judith. And that gave me an opportunity, you know, to kind of surprise some people because I was just, you know, a young, uh, young professional at that point in my career. But um, I can think about a half a dozen different situations where because I was effective in working relationships and doing my job well, that the combination of those two made me stand out and created opportunities for me to move forward. Well, it strikes me that with that example with Judith, that you also had a very open mind because typically when you think of difficult people, you think of that leave me alone mentality. And so when you said she needed communication on a daily basis, that actually kind of surprised me because I I would have assumed the opposite. Um, So you you also must have approached that situation with an open mind. I tend to when I'm interacting with people going into meetings and things like that, just because I'm the CFO. I don't necessarily feel the need to be uh, the person who's talking first and talking most often. You know, I like to pay attention to the dynamics of the different people that I'm interacting with. And I've always been somebody who also wants to try to make other people comfortable in the interaction. Um, and so I try to, um, one, be, you know, uh, paying attention and watching people's body language. And if somebody stiffens up because I say something, then I'm like, okay, well, what did I just say uh, that caused that reaction? Because it's not what I intended. And so to replay and adjust on the fly to be able to uh, work with people in a way that is most effective for them. Because I, you know, that whole 
statement about business happening at the speed of trust, there's a lot of um, reality to that. If you can develop trustful working relationships, then people give you the benefit of the doubt. So if I'm sending out an email at 1030 at night before I go to bed and I'm uh, a little less careful than I should be about where I place my commas or emphasis, then if I've developed a a trustful working relationship and the person getting that email isn't going to automatically assume that I'm angry or upset or that I'm being aggressive or something like that. All right. So the most fun question of the show that everybody loves to answer, (laughs) thinking back on your time as the CBO, Aaron, would you tell us what you consider to be your most fabulous failure and what you learned from it? It's interesting that you say that this is a fun (laughs) fun question. Everyone loves it. I'm so excited when I ask this one. Uh, maybe there's a little sarcasm. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, I, I've tried to obviously learn from lots of little mistakes throughout my career, uh, other than perhaps a, um, a stray reply all that I think we've all fallen victim to. Um, one of the things actually that I, that I, still I'm reacting to now is, uh, and it's kind of a specific example, but, um, the, the magic and the, uh, challenge of, uh, things like public private partnerships, um, how there's a lot of value in them for institutions that may struggle with resources or cash flow, uh, and still are needing to do something, uh, strategic for the institution, but the importance there of, really having to be super hands-on with those because understand that everybody has a profit motive and everyone's going to try to, especially, you know, in the private sector, squeeze the most profit you can out of any particular project. If, if we're not paying really close attention, then at the end of a project like that, you can be left with an asset that really is going to cause you a lot of problems. And I've faced that both at Oregon state and here at Averett where, um, because, uh, we perhaps didn't put enough resources around the management of those projects uh, that cause us a lot of problems on the backside. And like I said, it's, it's specific and it's for those CB, CFOs, CBOs who oversee facilities too. But um, it's just something that really kind of has been crystallized a couple of times in my, um, in my professional career. I wouldn't consider that a fabulous <laughs> failure, but I'll, I'll take it. Well, maybe not fabulous. Not always <laughs> fabulous all the time. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron, so much for joining me today and sharing just a few of your insights and experience with our listeners today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I was happy to do it. You can find out more about Aaron and today's episode by visiting the education section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Aaron and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. Mm-hmm.